service year in here, so our paths don't really cross that much. But I've seen some of the faces here and there around, but it's just good to just see you all here and to see who's in whole heart. And, and uh, when Mitch reached out, I thought, wow, yeah, sure. I'm <laughs> if, if, uh, if that would please the Lord, I'm glad to, to just have a, a small part. I, I love Mitch. I love Mitch. I, I came to faith in 1994 at the Kansas City Baptist Temple, and Mitch was a big brother to me at that time. He was someone that uh, the Lord had in my life, and a guy that I studied and watched and learned from. And, and I will tell you to this day, as one of the pastors here at Midtown, I still learn from him. I mean, he is a guy that I'm blessed to, to, to work with as, as co-laborers in the Lord's work, but I'm also blessed to walk with him on a personal level. Mitch is a dear friend of mine. One of the things about Mitch I really treasure is his wisdom. He is a wise man, and I have been in, and I am in, a number of conversations with him where I just get to glean, I get to learn. So I'm still learning from Mitch today as much as I did back in the 90s at the Kansas City Baptist Temple. And of course, I have great respect for his wife, Michelle, what a godly woman. So ladies, you're blessed. Study, watch. God is giving you an ensample of a godly woman. So love adoptions. Thank God. God, that he led them here, you were blessed to have him as the pastor of whole heart. So glean all that you can from both of them. So we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 5. You will be making your way there. My wife and I, we were married in 2002, and in 2003, the Lord relocated us to Long Island. We were in ministry there for about seven years and the church that we were a part of was a cultural melting pot it was beautiful you had the the earth right the world was represented in that church in a very very strong way and one of the things that I came to learn and being around many foreign cultures I learned about their passion for hospitality and what I also learned was I also learned how inept I was at it, right? I mean, they were masters of hospitality, unlike anything I'd ever seen to the point where at times it was uncomfortable. But one of the things that I learned very quickly was that um, when you read in Scripture that we are to greet one another with a holy kiss, uh, there are parts of the world that take that literally. And so uh, it was early on, you know, you walk up and put my hand out and they shake my hand, but then pull me in and kiss me on the cheek. And I'm like, hey, lady, I'm married. What are you doing? Right? And I got to a point where I would try to avoid it. You know, I would like put my hand out and just kind of step back. And one woman in particular, she would actually grab my head just to make sure because I was just trying to avoid it. I'm saying, listen, I don't want all you people kissing on me. And I'm not kissing anybody except my wife and my kids, right? But, um, it was it was just part of the culture. That was the culture of the church, and it was the culture of the area that we were in. Would you agree that every church, every group has a culture? Yeah. It does. Every church, every group has a culture. Churches that greet with a holy kiss versus churches that don't aren't superior or inferior. It's just culture, right, depending on where you are. Where we're going this morning 
is when we consider the heart of the Great Commission and the significance of it when it comes to the culture of a church. I believe it's safe to say that we want to have a discipleship culture where that is the air that we're breathing in every room. It speaks to the culture. It speaks to who we are. It represents what we're all about, a discipleship culture. Listen, discipleship cultures primarily are not comprised of believers. Uh, Praise the Lord for those who have believed on the gospel. They are saved. They are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. They've been made to sit together in heavenly places. That's fantastic. Discipleship cultures are also not primarily comprised of church attenders. Okay? Uh, These are those who are just kind of kicking the tire, so to speak. Just kind of dipping their toes in the water. As long as things are going well, they'll keep attending. But that church needs to understand that it's on thin ice. Because the moment something doesn't work out or go well, they're gone. Right? Discipleship cultures have believers and attenders. The issue is this. You can't be a true disciple without being a believer and a church attender. Right? But you can be a believer and attend church without being a true disciple. This is what we're getting at. When we're talking about a discipleship culture, we're not talking about a culture where people are kicking the tires, where people are resting in the wall of their salvation that they, that they prayed 20 years ago. And, that, and that's essentially the, the highlight of their Christian life. That's not a discipleship culture. So, what does a discipleship culture look like? Obviously, we go to the Word of God to answer that definitively, and we'll see that in Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also hath loved us, and hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. Now, if you notice, obviously, this verse, in verse 1, begins with, Be ye therefore. So that connects us to the previous thought in chapter 4. So what Paul is saying now is connected to what he has said to us in chapter 4. And in chapter 4, he was calling the believers at Ephesus to, listen, to align their walk with their position in Christ. In other words, how we walk as believers, it ought to be consistent with who we are in Jesus Christ. This is what Paul is getting at here in these opening verses. So in chapter 4, he made it clear how they were to walk. They were to walk worthy of their vocation. And they were not to walk as other Gentiles walked. In other words, your position in Christ should not look like anything regarding the world. That's not your position in Christ. So your walk can't reflect that. So chapter 5 begins with a specific response. Be ye therefore followers of God. 
This is plain and straightforward. Nothing ambiguous about it. There's no Greek nuance or Hebrew secret or anything like that. But here's what I want to make sure we get. Our walk is always based on our following. Our walk is based on our following. So however you're walking is based on who you're following and what you're following. If our walk is going to be aligned with our position in Christ, then we must be followers of God. And if we're talking about following, well then now we're talking about discipleship, aren't we? We have to be. What did the Lord say? Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. So if we're talking about following, absolutely the focus is discipleship. And listen, it amazes me that some have actually come to the place in the church that they have somewhat of an expired perspective on discipleship. Like that somehow expired with Christ in the Twelve. The issue with that view is that the Apostle Paul clearly did not get that memo. Because when you read his epistles, he focused a great deal on this very thing, following. 1 Corinthians 4.16, Wherefore I beseech you, be ye followers of me. Uh, chapter 11, verse 1, Be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. Philippians 3.17, Brethren, be followers together of me, and mark them which walk so as ye have us for an example. 1 Thessalonians 1, 6 and 7, And ye became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost, so that ye were in samples to all that were in Macedonia and Achaia. How did he refer to Timothy and Titus? He referred to them as what? His sons in the faith. So clearly the Apostle Paul did not have an expired view of discipleship, and we can't in the church either. Discipleship did not expire with Christ, nor was it limited to the earthly ministry of Christ. You see it all throughout Scripture, right? You see it with Joshua and Moses, right? Joshua would go on to do something. Not even Moses did. He actually led the people into the land. You see it with Elijah and Elisha. You see it with Naomi and Ruth. I mean, you've got many pictures in God's Word. But our walk will never be aligned with our position if we're not following God. And how do we do that? How do we follow God? We follow God through a personal relationship with His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Word. That's how we follow. And this is emphasized in the statements in verse 1, as dear children. So as believers in Jesus Christ, we are not just children of God. We are dear children of God. Uh, this is powerful. In this book of 1 Peter, it's fantastic. We learn that the blood of Christ is precious to God. We also learn there that Christ himself is precious to God. But we too are precious to God. We too mean a great deal. Consider Colossians 1.13. Who have delivered us from the power of darkness and have translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. 
So, God's Son is dear to him. Well, who are we and where are we as believers? We are in Christ. So if God's Son is dear to him and we are in Christ, that can only mean that we too are dear to God. This is why the Bible tells us that we are accepted in the Beloved. Well, who's the Beloved? God's Son is His well-beloved, and we are in Him. So this is powerful. But we still have to definitively clarify what this culture looks like. And we see that verse 1 ends with a semicolon. That only means that he's not done with this thought yet. He has more to say. He has more to elaborate on to make sure that we understand what he was trying to convey in verse 1. So just as be ye therefore is a continuation of thought from chapter 4, you get the same thing here with the semicolon. Look at verse 2. And walk in love as Christ also hath loved us and hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. So, if we are following God as dear children, we will walk in love as Christ also hath loved us. So here we go. In discipleship cultures, whether it be Midtown as a whole, whether it be whole heart as a fellowship or life fellowship as a fellowship, in these cultures, here's what we find. Loving saints. We find loving saints. Where you have a discipleship culture, you will have loving saints. Paul addressed this epistle to the saints which are at Ephesus. Ephesus bore the title of the first and greatest metropolis of Asia. It was a capital city. It was a key city, but it was also a very pagan city. It celebrated idolatry. It celebrated things that grieved God to the core. It was a lascivious city. It very dark that way, and the culture exercised no restraint whatsoever when it came to sexuality and things like that. It was very impure. Why do I mention that? I mention that to point out that in cultures like people are very selfish and they're very greedy. They're only concerned with what brings them pleasure. They think about themselves most, and if it works for me, I don't care if it works for you or not. I'm only looking to make sure that I'm satisfied and I'm pleased. One of the problems with that is that is not descriptive of someone who is following God as a dear child. Not at all. The culture inside the church at Ephesus, listen, but it had to be very different from the culture in the city of Ephesus. There had to be a great difference. If believers in a local church are not following God as disciples indeed, listen, they cannot, nor will they, walk in love like Christ. <laughs> they won't do it. They'll only love themselves. They'll only be about themselves. They'll only be concerned with their life and me, myself, and I, so to speak. The church at Corinth did not have a discipleship culture. The issues that the Apostle Paul had to deal with there 
were so heavy and grievous that it would tempt the greatest of pastors to resign. I mean, the church was a mess. A mess. And one of the biggest issues that he had to address was the issue of the resurrection of the dead. Not a small issue. But would you notice, when he opens this epistle, and we read the first chapter, the first issue that he addressed was not the resurrection of the dead, or or them suing one another in secular court. Not the first issue he addressed. The first issue that he addressed is found in verse 10 of chapter 1. Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together, in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it hath been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. That's where he started. He started by addressing their divisions, plural, and their contentions, plural. This was a church that was at war with itself. They were a house divided. They were not a culture of loving saints. They were a culture of divided saints who were fighting. Now, would you contrast that with what the Apostle Paul had to say to the church at Colossae? In Colossians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, he wrote, We give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love which ye have to all the saints. Colossae was a church that had a culture of loving saints. They were not at war with themselves. They were not a house divided, so to speak. Culturally, Corinth and Ephesus were very similar. And the believers at Corinth, boy, were they selfish and greedy. They were all about themselves. They were absolutely a mess. Instead of fleeing fornication, they embraced it. They made a mockery of the Lord's table. And some of them were sick and had even died for doing so. Some were divorcing and remarrying as often as we change our clothes. It was a mess. It was not a discipleship culture. It is certain. It is certain. You show me a culture, you show me a group that is divided in any church, and I will declare emphatically they're not making disciples. You cannot make disciples in a house divided. You cannot make disciples where believers are acting like babies and whining and murmuring and complaining and fighting and just, it's just about me. (laughs) That sounds very strong, but it's easy to justify biblically. Because what do we read in John 13, 35? By this, Jesus says, All men shall know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. That's how we're going to know. That's how we're going to (laughs) know. What does a discipleship culture look like? 
disciples are loving one another. They're not fighting with one another. <laughs> They're loving one another. One of the proofs that someone is or is a growing disciple is that they're going to love God's people. They are. They're going to be all about God's people. Not tolerate them. No, I love you. Again, notice verse 2. And walk in love as Christ also hath loved us. We look like Christ not based on how much Bible we know or how much ministry we're doing. We look like Christ when we walk in love. That's how we know. Discipleship cultures provide us with a visual of something we read about in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8. And it says... And above all things, have fervent charity among yourselves, for charity shall cover the multitude of sins. Have fervent charity among yourselves is a culture statement. It speaks to the culture of a group of people. So if we are a group, if we are a fellowship whole heart, then we got to have fervent charity among ourselves. In that culture, people are loving God and one another, listen, deeply and unconditionally. No one's on thin ice. And, and this is how we, we, we execute this whole love thing, right? For us, so often, it's conditional. Right? As long as you're making me happy and doing things that I like and you're making decisions that I agree with, then you have my love and support. But the moment you say or do something that I don't like, well then, see, this is the thing about spiritual maturity, right? This is amazing. This is something I can't get over in my relationship with God. This blows my mind. It blows my mind. The Bible teaches us that God is love. He is. So guess what? This is crazy, okay? There's nothing that I can do, nothing, that would move God to love me more or love me less. What does the Bible say? What can separate us as believers from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus? What? Nothing. <laughs> the issue with us and the issue with the spiritually immature is their love barometer does this. So, I like that. I agree with that. I really love you. Is this not the game we play in marriage, too? Oh. God's love never does that. It's fixed. No matter what you do, God says, I love you. And this is what you see in mature discipleship cultures. It doesn't mean that things are perfect. It doesn't mean we don't have issues that we have to work through. This is why you see the statement, for charity shall cover the multitude of sins. Charity doesn't excuse sin, but it does cover it. 
It says, despite what you've done, I'm going to love you. I'm not going to pull my sacrificial Christ-like love from you. Because if we have not charity, what did the Apostle Paul say about that? What do we have? Nothing. If we don't have charity, he said, we don't have nothing. Charity is the highest expression of love. And Paul says, if I don't have that, I got nothing. And here's a guy who was a doctrinal giant. <laughs> the man. But said, if I don't have charity, I have nothing. We often say in our church and in circles like ours that we want to be Philadelphian and the Laodicean age. And that sounds really nice, except subconsciously we overlook what Philadelphia means. What does that word mean? Brotherly love. So if we really want to be Philadelphian, then we're going to be a culture of loving saints, not just Bible heads. So let me ask you before we go to the next point. I'm not here. This is my first time here. I, I, I was, yeah, it's like, you know, I think I was, maybe it was when Mike was trying to get under my skin and he named this class Life Serial. I love Mike. Love Mike a lot. <laughs> Mike is as near and dear to me as Mitch. But I'm like, dude, come up with another name, man. Life is already taken. Okay? But this is my first time in Hawaii. I've, I've had a great time. I mean, I... I it's a lot of wonderful faces, and you guys seem very engaged and receptive. And I mean, I know Mitch, so I'm not surprised by any of that. But but I'm not here every week, and I'm not on your Bible studies, and I'm not a part of everything going on in Ohio. But let me ask: Is this a fellowship of loving saints? Is this a culture of fervent charity amongst one another? I don't know. You know, because you're here, right? Verse 2. So we see that Christ also hath loved us, and we're to walk in love, and hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. So it should not come as a surprise to us that what follows love is sacrificial giving. Because that is what true love is rooted in, is it not? It absolutely is. True love is always rooted in sacrifice. This is what we see in the first mention of love in Genesis 22. Right? That's the first mention where God talks about Abraham's love for his son, Isaac. And what was Abraham getting ready to do? <laughs> Sacrifice him. This is true love. Let me just, if I can, let me just challenge the husbands for just a moment. I am as imperfect as every husband in this room. But let me just make this very, very clear. As a husband, there is one area that you absolutely cannot get wrong in marriage, and it is love. You are to be Christ-like. 
You are to love your wife like Christ loved the church. Well, how did he love the church? He gave himself for it. So as a husband, (laughs) you have to understand that your mission to the glory of God is plain and clear. It's a death mission. You die daily for the glory of God and the edification of your wife. We'll talk more about that here in just a minute. For God so loved the world that what did he do? Gave what? His only sacrifice. But what Paul was making clear was that Christ, listen, Christ, brothers, is the standard for what love is. It's not YouTube. It's not Hollywood. Christ is the standard for real love. And at its core, real love is not just rooted in sacrifice, but costly sacrifice. Christ gave himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. So here we go. In discipleship culture is just what we find. We find loving saints, but we also find living sacrifices. In discipleship cultures, we find living sacrifices. A culture of loving saints and living sacrifices, listen, is anti-Laodicean. It's anti-Laodicean. In Laodicean cultures, people are preoccupied with what? Their rights. Their rights. That's what the word means. Rights or justice of the people. So with that preoccupation, I have something, right? Here we go. In a Laodicean culture, when you are preoccupied and consumed with your rights, you possess something that poses a great problem for every relationship, for every marriage, for every church, for every group. You know what that is? You possess expectations. You possess expectations. Here's the problem with that. The Bible says that when we were saved, guess what? We became servants of God. Servants, not masters. So, when you're reading the Gospel of Mark and you're in those opening chapters, you know one of the things that you don't find? You don't find a genealogy. Why? Well, because the book of Mark portrays or presents Christ as God's servant. A servant had no genealogy. A servant, a slave, had no rights. So who am I, as a believer in Jesus Christ, to be preoccupied with my rights? (laughs) I'm a slave to Christ. Some of us, if we're not careful... And this is so very crazy. Some believers are so detached from the Word of God that they actually expect to be treated better than Christ when He was here. Wait a minute. Would I really expect to be treated better than the Lord Jesus Christ? who was rejected and mocked and butchered 
And I'm going to rant and rave and stomp because someone's not treating me in a way that I think I should be treated? Let me just share with you a game-changing principle that the Lord gave me about a year ago as a husband. I am allowed one expectation as a husband. I only get one. To serve my wife. I'm a servant. (laughs) That's my only expectation. It's to serve. Any expectation that I have from there everything in my marriage begins to go downhill from there. But that principle should carry over into all of our relationships, correct? Because if there is a theme verse in discipleship cultures, it's Mark 10.45. For even the Son of Man, in other words, if anyone was to be the exception to what follows, it was him. But even, for even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus came and he had only two clear expectations to the glory of God and the edification of humanity. You know what they were? To serve and die. Period. He was a living sacrifice to the glory of God the Father. Now, if that's how Jesus came, if that's how Jesus adorned his heart and his mind, what does that say to you and me as followers of him? If Jesus came to serve and die, and I am calling myself a disciple indeed and saying I'm following him, and I somehow have expectations that are different than that? What am I missing? This is one of the issues, this is a a word in ministry I've come to loathe. Expectations. Because when people have them, and they're not to serve and die, you are going to have heartburn. They're always offended, they're mad about something, they're let down here, I can't believe that, why this, why that? They're owed something everywhere they go. I'm here. Hey, I didn't get this. I didn't get that. No one's serving me. No one's dying for me. Your expectations are carnal. They're not Christ-like. Mark 10.45, Jesus came to serve and die, brothers and sisters. We have goals in discipleship, but the ultimate goal is Christ-likeness. That's the ultimate goal, is to be like Him. And if that is true, then you know what whole heart's going to be about? 
it's going to be about you guys tripping over yourselves, serving and dying for one another. Not pouting because you walked in and no one said hi to you or whatever stuff that people do. No. I'm here to serve and die to the glory of God and to your edification. You owe me nothing. I owe you my life. One is I've learned, this is true, in every marriage, in every relationship, you only have two kinds of people. Creditors and debtors. The problem in relationships are creditors because they are always owed something. They're always looking to collect. I'm here, you owe me, pay up. But debtors, debtors say, oh no, <laughs> I, I owe you. <laughs> I, I, I'm indebted to you. You ought to compare John 3.16 with 1 John 3.16 and it's amazing what you see there. We, we get John 3.16, but in 1 John 3.16, we're told essentially when it comes to one another that we are to do the same thing that Jesus did. We ought, the word there is ought, that means obligated. That means indebted. We ought to lay our lives down for one another. I'm going to tell you, you want a beautiful marriage, you want a beautiful fellowship, be a culture of debtors. Be a culture of debtors. And God will be pleased and you'll have the time of your life. I'm telling you, I've learned this and I praise God for it. Do you know who is never unhappy in life? I mean never. Do you know who's never dissatisfied in life? Who's never disappointed, never mad at people? You know who that is? A true servant. You know why? Because the only expectation that a true servant has is to serve. How can you ever be disappointed? <laughs> no one ever owes you anything. You are never entitled to anything. Everywhere you go, you walk up and it's like you got an apron on. I'm here to serve. Not here to be served. I'm here to serve. As I land the plane here, we have to understand we talk about the Great Commission often, as we should. But if we are going to live the Great Commission as a church, as a fellowship, it requires living sacrifices. Can't do it any other way. Consider John 12, 24. Jesus says this, Very, very, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone, but if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. Are you ready? Are you ready? This is what we extract from this. This is critical. Something must die in order for something else to live. We can talk all day long about winning people to Christ and making disciples 
as serving God or rule the world and world missions. That is the great, we, we, we can talk about that all we want. But if we are unwilling to fall into the ground and die, we're just playing church. We're playing church. One of the things that you just see and you get to a point where you say, you know what, at the end of the day, at some point, they're going to have to figure out that this is not about them. They can point fingers and say, oh, well, no, it's this, and no, it's them, and no matter where they go, or who they're around, those people, that group is always the pro- It's never them. So it's Sam, or it's me, or it's whoever. They are the source for why they are so miserable in life. And God says, you want joy? You want peace? You want purpose? You want fulfillment? You want to glorify me by winning people to Christ and making disciples out of them? And blazing the globe with the gospel and planting churches? Die. Become a Romans 12.1 believer. A living sacrifice. So, what does a discipleship culture look like? Loving saints and living sacrifices. That pleases God. And oh my goodness, do we live the Great Commission in that culture. Amen? Lord, I want to thank you for your word. It is only good, always clear. I do ask, God, that for your glory and for the edification of your people, that it would accomplish in their hearts that which pleases you, that it would fall out to fruit, remaining fruit, to your glory. Amen. So I don't know, Wilbur, did you wrap up or are we, we're good? We're a few minutes early, so feel free to hang Okay. There's more snacks. Don't forget your kids. <laughs> <laughs> That's the big one. Uh, don't forget your kids.